Welcome to Shop Talk Live, episode number 228. We have a fun episode for you today. Asa Christiana joins Mike and I, and we discuss woods for workbench tops, the wood that you would stock up on if you were in Europe and can bring some back, the best project you can make to give as a wedding present for extended family, and whether you should think about clamping the sides of your mortise and tenon joints. But first, I want to tell everybody about our next webinar coming up on November 19th, and I'm pretty excited about this one. It's with Josh Clark of Hyperkitten Tools. He's an antique tool dealer and focuses on usable antique tools, user tools. And he's going to be talking about the history of Bailey hand planes, the Stanley Bailey bedrock thing. I think it's going to be super, super interesting. Josh is a wealth of information on any and all hand tools. So head on over to finewoodworking.com slash shop class or finewoodworking.com slash webinars and join in on the fun. All right, we'll start the show after word from our sponsors. Whether you're working in the shop or on the job site, it's not a debate that dust extraction is incredibly important. That's why Festool USA has continued to innovate ways to deliver top-tier dust extraction solutions, as best seen in Festool's new CT48AC. This machine is designed to capture high volumes of dust and keep the job progressing with its 12.7 gallon capacity and continue operating at its peak efficiency with its automatic cleaning mechanism. The versatile CT48AC syncs with Festool tools via Bluetooth for seamless operation and is also OSHA Table 1 compliant for materials containing silica dust and it is well suited for a diverse set of job site tasks while limiting downtime for emptying filter bags due to its large capacity. Backed by the company's three-year wear and tear warranty, the CT48AC is built for the toughest demands. For information, visit festoolusa.com slash fall2020. Asa Christiana, you've been a busy man. I try to stay busy because uh, I'm a freelancer, so I got to keep the lights on and the kids in college, so I have to stay busy. I have no choice. I thought you were going to say, otherwise you get in trouble. No, no. Otherwise, I have way more fun. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So uh, in the most recent issue, you bylined or authored two articles for us, right? Yeah, and I shot a third. I shot the one on the outfeed table as well, yeah. Right. Oh, I didn't know that. Yep. So uh, you you had the fun task of taking on a whole bunch of wall-mounted dust collectors to test. That's right. That does not sound like uh, a happy fun time. Well, for most like normal humans, that would not be fun at all. But um, for me, I actually love tool tests. It's like one of my favorite things to do because they come with Uh, unique challenges that are like fun food for my brain. Brain food, brain fun food. Cool. So, so like you wound up testing five. Um, I think uh, six in the end after we sort of narrowed the list down according to certain criteria. But yeah, I think there were ultimately six of them in the test. Okay. Mike, have have you ever wound up doing a a head to head tool test like that or, um, not directly. It seems like I'm quasi involved in all of them, but not that. But the big thing, Asa, on these dust collectors is that they're pretty small. And the in the question going in, are these actually worth owning at all? And you 
basically found out that, yeah, I think just about all of them you reviewed could handle a single machine and some of them could handle multiple machines. I was surprised by that. Yeah, totally. You know, the, uh, that was one of our, exactly right. That was one of our first questions going in because we never looked at this category, category before in my memory. And so it was, so, but we've seen them out there. And so the first question was, there were a number of questions about what are these good for, if anything. <laughs> one of them is, um, is, you know, would they work, how would they work just by themselves hooked up to one machine close by? You know, the farther you make a dust hose travel, the more it steals suction. And uh, so it's like, how would they work just attached to one machine that's really close by? And then they also come with these brackets, like you can buy multiple brackets. So there's this sort of idea that you could lift it off the bracket and take it to another machine. Um, on the first question, yes, that if you put them relatively close to a machine, uh, the smaller units in the test, even the smallest units in the test um, will all be great. A, a dedicated to a single machine and kept about six feet away. Uh, as for moving them around on various brackets, no, they're way too heavy to do that. That won't work. But there was one of the machines in the test that was uh, that was really big. So for that one and for the smaller ones, we were so, sort of also wondering, could you, in a small shop, which of these would work as connected to multiple machines with blast gates and maybe longer hose runs, you know? So we also attacked that question, too. Um, uh, in the course of doing the review. I, I have seen people say that you can move these wall-mounted dust collectors around, and I'm sure, like, because what are they, 50, 60 pounds? It's like, yeah, I can physically pick up 50 <laughs> yeah. or 60 pounds, but it has got to be the most awkward 50 or 60-pound package in the history of the world, other than, like, a small child who's not wanting to be carried somewhere that you're forcing them to be carried. A very large child, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that you're holding, like, awkwardly with a handle, and if they had a, a um, canister filter attached to them, then it would be like that, but... Yeah, no, it's possible, of course. And, um, and you could do it. It's just not something that you would really do on a regular basis. You'd soon get frustrated and just not do it, I think, yeah. unless you're like in the Scottish Highland games, maybe those kind of guys. <laughs> those guys who are throwing like telephone poles and, and yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, um, yeah, I really am thinking about getting one of those wall-mounted dust collectors just because I have a severe dust collection issue and an odd footprint to my shop. And the fact that I can store things under the dust collector, if it's hanging on the wall buys, you know, it doubles the effectiveness of that footprint for me. Right. So, yeah. So Ben, are you, are you looking to collect dust from like all of your machines or is there just one or two that you really want to, it's really my table saw. It's okay. really, really my table saw. So I have a small dust collector that lives attached to my bandsaw. Okay. And the table saw is the only thing that is just really spewing dust everywhere right now. The joiner, yeah. I don't use it all that often. The planer, if I'm using it a lot, I'll just drag it out into the driveway and who cares. Yeah. Um, but the table saw is just, that's the biggest offender. And my problem is, it's on an island, basically. So I don't want I don't want to have to run lines all over the place to get it to a centralized dust collector. So I'm almost thinking I have a, a, a wall that's 
four feet away from the table saw that I can mount one of the wall mounted units to and then just hook it up when need be. Oh, cool. Right. So, yeah, that's like exactly what we figured out in this test. There were five of them, long story short, five of them ended up are the same size. They're either three quarters or one horse and they're smaller, a little bit more portable. And then one of them is a horse and a half from Rockler. That's just giant. So they kind of two very different families. Um, the smaller ones, uh, are perfect for that. I'm actually going to get one myself and put it near my table saw because I'm tired of having that hose run all the way across the shop. I have yeah. another bigger collector of, that's attached to multiple machines, but I'm going to get one of the small ones and stick it on the wall by my table saw because that's like the outlier in my shop array of like you were saying. So it's perfect for that. And then, so all of the five smaller ones are great for that. Uh, like if you have sort of a problem machine somewhere that's just off to the side, that'd be great. And then there is one bigger one that really is strong enough to be a central dust collector for the whole shop. And I talk about that in the article too. Yeah. Well, awesome. Um, Should we, all right, let's, let's answer some, some questions. Let's see. So question number one is from Tom. Uh, What project or piece of furniture would you suggest making as a wedding present for a non-immediate family member, like a niece or a nephew. I have three weddings coming up in the next year. Uh, in addition to what we typically give, I thought it would be good to put my woodworking tools and skills to use to make something. No cutting board suggestions, please. So there goes everyone's first answer. Well, why not? <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> cutting boards are really cool. And it's something that the people are guaranteed to use or need, even if they have one. I think that's a good thing. I don't know. Okay. So cutting boards are off the table. Here's the thing. Giving people or having someone give you something handmade can be an awkward situation. It's like, oh, thanks. That's that's great. Um, but because you are a woodworker and you do have the means to make something that someone can actually use um, – and that they would want, I would say, ask them like, you know, like a, like a smaller blanket chest can be a really cool thing for a newly married couple if they have room for it. And if they do, what kind of wood do they like? Are they shaker people? Are they like mid-century modern people? And, you know, a old pine blanket chest is going to clash with that. Um, ask them, maybe like give them some options, maybe think of maybe two or three things you can make. So they're not saying, can you redo our kitchen for us? That would be rough, Yeah, <laughs> but um, get their input. I, I mean, better safe than sorry. I don't think, I think in this case, knowing that you're going to give something that is appreciated trumps any sort of surprise you could throw at them by a mile. I would add that as a reader of fine woodworking, you have the ability to make things that are not that kind of like secret, quiet, grown present where they're like, oh, great. Thanks so much. And then they're like, we could, let's put it somewhere where we can take it out once a year when they come over and have the birdhouse out in the backyard. But then we're put it away. And how many years do we need to do that before we can throw it away? You know, you don't yes. want to. Yeah. So I think, but I think as, with the skills that are in the magazine, you can you definitely have the ability to make something that is both beautiful and really useful to them. And uh, one of the things that 
is a potential trouble area is small boxes because they're so easy to make and they can be easy to make and they're easy to make in multiples. So that's like, oh, awesome for a present. But at the same time, you know, I'm not a huge fan of giving people those sort of nameless boxes and they don't really know what to put in it. And, you know, it could end up being coming that sort of dust collector. Uh, speaking of dust collectors, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but there's a couple kinds of boxes, I think, but you can, you can, it doesn't have to be a bad idea. Like uh, it can be a really useful box. Like someone made me a friend, actually, uh, John Tetro made me a, uh, a little box that holds kosher salt because you use it in cooking so much. So that's like a really useful, I guess you'd call it a salt cellar or something. That's like a really useful box that it has a purpose. Another one that I've been teaching in a class here locally in Oregon is, um, I call it a tea box, but it's made to fit little custom tea bags and it's really quick to make. And, um, and you, and it fits those bags. So you could put a nice assortment of bags in there and it's a nice little thing to hand to someone. Um, it may fall into that category Mike was talking about ultimately, but. I think it's a no, nice not at all. I, I think if it's a useful thing and you fill it up with tea packets and it's like, oh, that's better than a cardboard box and I drink tea. Yeah. I think that's awesome. I think that that's a perfect thing. I think that's great. You could you could always make um a box that is the wrapping of another present, such as a box to, to house a wine bottle or something or a bottle of scotch or whatever. Not a humidor. No. <laughs> No, I'm not Ed. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm just saying there there are certain gifts that that could be prone to causing a rift in the marriage, such as a humidor or a giant box. bottle of brandy in a box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that could be rough. My so. my go to with this question was a picture frame, a nice simple picture frame with a picture of you in it. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, screenshot this right here and yeah. put it in there and be like, this mm-hmm. is what the woodworking guy said to do. Yeah. Um, but a nice simple picture frame, don't go too woodworkery on it and have a whole bunch of like contrasting, just something simple that won't detract from the picture it is housed in mm. because they can hopefully maybe print up a nice wedding picture and everyone will go, Ooh, Ooh, ah. And then maybe somebody will say, that's a nice frame. Yeah. My uncle made it. He's a woodworker. And that's that you can't go wrong with a picture frame because everybody needs picture frames as long as it's nice and simple. I would include in there the glass and the mat and everything they need to put the picture in there because Mm -hmm. You know, they can sort of get hung up on that part of the project. Now I have to, it's nice to give them the whole package. It's like, all you have to do is put the picture in there and, yeah. you know, you have a handmade frame. The other thought that comes to mind is um, gifts that you can make in multiples. That's really nice. Like one jig and, you know, if you have your sled set up to make these miter boxes, for example, you can, it's as easy to crank out 10 as it would be to make two or three. So it's a, it, it really think multiples too. If you have an idea that you're really happy with and you don't think it's going to be a dust collector, like think about uh, things you can make in multiples because you can knock out a lot of small, thoughtful gifts in a very short session. That's true. Yeah, for the picture frame, throw a mirror in there too. And then it's like a complete thing. So just hang up a mirror on the wall. Those are... You can always find some odd wall space for a mirror, whether it's like in an entry or a bathroom or a bedroom or something like that. 
Um, but yeah, Asa, the, the multiples are really important because if you do a good job and you say you give people a little tea box and they really like it, the next time they're invited to a wedding, they're going to call you up and say, can I get another tea box? Yeah. And, and you're going to say those are a hundred dollars each. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if, if, if you want to talk about this, but didn't you have that happen one time, Mike, and it turned into like a thing. Uh, yeah. We're like all of a sudden you kept having to make this thing over and over and you didn't want to anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, I mean some like one holiday season a while back, um, I, entered we did like a little craft fair my wife and i and i had some like bigger pieces of furniture and then i also as an aside made a couple small boxes and some cutting boards in a couple different sizes the idea is that those were supposed to act like an hors d'oeuvre to the main course which was buy a piece of furniture no i ended up unintentionally being in the business of making small boxes and cutting (laughs) boards so if you want to do that that's great but be careful because yeah uh, very yeah, careful. maybe 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 birdhouse is the way to go. Maybe we've been thinking about this all wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, and Asa, you were dead on with the whole get the glass and the map because I laughed. I right there hanging on my wall is a picture frame I made as a prop for something mm. probably about three years ago. It's beautiful walnut, simple picture frame that I have been waiting to get glass and mat and, and all of that for, yeah. for about three years now. And <laughs> I even, Do you know, I have five of those in my shop on a shelf about the same height that you just pointed to. I literally have five of those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I'm trying to think of anything else that, that is a great all around project. Other than you're right, Mike. I'm sorry, cutting board. I've cutting I've gone great. out of my way to never make a cutting board. For some reason, like when I was learning guitar, I was the guy who refused to learn Stairway to Heaven. And I'm the woodworker who refuses to make a cutting board. But that's it. Everybody needs cutting boards. I have one more that that's just just throw it out there. The same way you can make a little mitered tea box. You can use the same exact techniques to make a little mitered letter tray, and which holds like eight and a half by 11 paper. And it's mm-hmm. kind of a cute thing to put. I'm going to sort of turn my camera over there. So you can see a tray sitting on the edge of that desk. Um, oh, with that tools and shops issue sitting yes, right there. Yes. Wow, that was is. nice. So this, this is also one that I teach in a class. And it's just mm-hmm. a simple little way to hold like either bills or your printer paper in a wood box. I don't know. Maybe it's not for everybody, but. I find that we have one downstairs to throw the bills that need to be dealt with. And we, I have one upstairs that I throw my printer paper in and it's kind of nice. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's see. Question number two is from Zachary. This is a oddball one. I live in the U S but I am in Europe and have a chance to buy some good European woods for local prices. I know Mike is very fond of English brown oak. If you could stock up on European woods at local prices, what would be on your list and why? Uh, and then he adds, I'm also considering, here he comes again, building Ed's not-so-big workbench. Ed had recommended hard maple for the top, but I, but I see most of, pre, most of the pre-made European benches you can purchase are made using European beach. If both the hard maple and the beach were the same price, which would you choose and why? My question is, how is he getting this wood back? That is a question. 
Because I can't imagine any savings not being canceled out. Yeah, I mean, my question was, are you woodworking in Europe with this wood or are you buying it to send back and you're thinking you're going to save so much money that you're going to offset the hundreds of dollars in shipping? Um, I don't know. I would do the math. I would I would find out how you're going to ship it and how much it would cost to ship before you bought it. Because maybe there's weird like import tariffs or something, you know, like for shipping raw materials. I have no idea. I haven't looked into that. There's, yeah, there's probably something there. Uh, there's definitely. I know even going into Canada, um, you you don't want to be shipping wood back and forth or products made of wood back and forth without uh, without any sort of uh, guarantees that there's not illegal woods in there. Right. Even, even as guitars, uh, you cannot ship guitars with Indian rosewood back and forth across the border. So right. I think it's more of a headache than, than would be worth, even if there was a savings. Right. I remember being in Europe with my family and I wanted to just mail back a couple bottles of wine and you can't do that. It's like, you need to have an import license if you want to mail alcohol um, See, was, if you made a box to put the wine in. Yes. <laughs> and you don't have to tell anyone. Yeah. yeah and wood is a sort of, uh, in big quantities, it sort of like, seems like, like an industrial thing. They, they probably have regulations for that, but I don't know. I, the, the point of including this question more for me was that what are the woods that you would want to work with if you were in Europe? Like, like more of a, more of a conversation starter. I know Mike, English brown oak is is one of your go-tos, but yeah, that's tough. I mean, I thought that in a lot of areas, all of the timber has already been cut down, so they're probably getting their wood. I know people who import American woods to Europe, especially Australia. Like, doesn't uh, Burn Chandley? Doesn't he import all of his wood from the U.S.? He imports walnut and ash, and yep, a lot of stuff. Yeah. So. I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know enough. I mean, yeah. I mean, I've pear wood. I think there's that's something that people really like. Um, English brown oak. It's a weird thing because it's sort of like a, it's almost like a standing dead wood that's been partially attacked by a fungus to give it its color. So. I I don't know. That's a, what about you, Asa? What about the the beech versus maple? Yeah, yeah. I was thinking of expanding the question to like um, just alternative woods to maple for for benches. You know, whatever you can get your hands on. And I think beech is excellent. It's really even grained, and um, I like that in a bench. It's pretty close grained, so you know it's not going to grab a lot of schmutz and grease and all that. Um, uh, I don't know about uh, stability of beach, but I think it's pretty stable, isn't it? I don't know. You guys probably know better. I think it's fine. It yeah. was kind of heavier and harder than I thought it would be because I used that to make my wall-hanging tool cabinet. It was it's like, wow, this is a little more difficult to work than I expected it to be. Oh, okay. But it looks really cool. I love the look of beach. It's, it's it a closed grain. Yeah, it has those little spots in it, like the little... Yeah, like mini Rayfleck or something. Exactly, right. Was it... It it isn't harder than maple, though, or hard maple, at least. What what about... Is it akin to sugar maple? I think it might be heavier, but not harder. 
is my it's, the sense I get. I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna say it's it feels denser, like it's okay. almost, but not brittle. It's more of sort of like a dull thud kind of wood, as opposed to brittle or splintery. Yeah, so, maple's a little more brittle, right, Mike? I guess so. Um, yeah. I think. It, I don't know that there's a big enough difference other other than aesthetics to go with one or price to go with one. What about some other woods, some alternative woods for workbenches, you know, for the tops, especially. Um, Yeah, that's a good point because your base doesn't have to be the same wood as the top. No, like I've seen beautiful benches in white oak. I've seen all sorts of really beautiful benches and all sorts of hardwoods. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I don't, I think, I think hardness is good, you know, unless you want it to get all dented up. I've seen people with fur benches and they just don't mind it getting kind of all dented up, but I would want something a little stiffer than that. Yeah. I would almost contemplate if I were making a new bench, just going with a pre glued up bench top from somewhere. Yeah. Cause it's such a hassle. Yeah, sure. don't, don't tell anybody, but I've never laminated a bench top. I did exactly what Mike's saying. I actually helped a guy frame his house and he gave me a big piece of butcher block for free, like, you know, bench top lamination. Yeah. And, uh, and that's how I got my uh, bench and I'm still using it now because I sort of felt like, yeah, I would like to avoid that process. Yeah. Um, I, for, for work bench top price wise, I'd have a hard time staying away from ash. Yeah. Right now. And I know it's open grain and it has a tendency to getting a little dirty. I I mean, it's so cheap right now. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is, I mean, maple is universal around here because it's perfect, kind of. And in North America, at least, it's pretty much a weed. You know, it's yeah. growing everywhere. But my wife and I have a joke where, you know, she'll go, oh, what kind of tree is that? I, go, I won't even look. I'll just go maple. Because... <laughs> In New England, it's it's a maple tree. Yeah. If you look, it's maple. Yeah. Um, it's true. So, yeah, yeah, I might do like an ash base um, again because it's dirt cheap and for and it's beautiful. I love it, but maybe um, probably glue up a maple top. Like you said, that's fairly inexpensive and it's going to give you more of a closed grain than the ash. But I don't know. Either one would be fine. One thought about um, if you do buy a pre glued top that. Uh, that's just the beginning of your bench. You can take that and then sort of um, trick it out to be like a really full traditional bench. In other words, like make glue on a deeper apron on the front and, and integrate your vice right into that apron. There's lots of articles about that. It's great to have the rear jaw of your front vice be uh, the actual apron of the bench. Exactly. And then, yep. and then uh, on the end, on mine, I put in a twin screw vice. So I just use it as the beginning platform for what I added to the bench. And so that's yeah. really nice. It gets the hard part out of the way, and then you can do the rest. So you have your, your twin screw at the end of your vice. Yeah. 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 Now, is that not mentioning brand names? Is that the one that you've had forever? <laughs> yes. Like you- everything I have is the one I've had forever. <laughs> okay. And do you, uh, come on, do you actually like that thing? I love it. Okay. It's great. Yeah, I really yeah. like it. I know, I know you're a doubter, but I like it. Um, if I had it to do again, I think I would have put it on the front, though. Okay. Um, I like it because I can glue, th- I can stand things up any which way, and uh, and it has a really long um, grab to it, a really long jaw, so I can put things in sideways and work the edges of them without having to sit it on a board jack or whatever. 
Um, right. I, yeah, I may, and it could be I love it just because it's what I have and what I'm used to. Okay. No, that, that counts. That's good. Not to mention any brand names. No. <laughs> oh, I can... I don't know how I'm going to dodge the comments coming in now if we're not going to mention a brand name. Well, Mike. the bottom line is Asa likes his Veritas twin screw vice. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny any brand. Uh, yeah. No. Yeah. It's a Veritas and, and I like it. I um, just, I said yeah. no brand just in case that you were down on it. I didn't want to oh. like, <laughs> them under the bus. So we're good. Okay. Shaper Origin Plus Workstation is a unique all-in-one workspace solution that applies CNC precision to projects that are beyond the scope of traditional machines. The complete cutting system from Shaper allows woodworkers to cut end grain joinery with ease, apply efficient fixturing on small or oddly shaped workpieces, bring precision cutting to any job site, design right on the tool without needing to know programming language, digitally archive templates for simplified workflows, and imply engravings and logos with confidence on finished workpieces. Streamline your operations today. Save $50 if you order the complete system at shapertools.com or from one of their authorized North American retailers. Not much going on this holiday season? Join Fine Woodworking Unlimited. With more than 40 years of content, we promise to sharpen your skills and keep you entertained through the holidays and beyond. It's time for for us to talk about our all-time favorite whatever of all time for this week. So who wants to take a swing first? Asa, what do you got, man? Um, I think when I respond to this, I'm scrambling around trying to find out what I told uh, you, Ben. You were very excited to talk about a, a cordless drill. Yeah, it's right? the Bosch okay. drill, yeah. You, you can do whatever you want. I don't want to... You, yeah, you so the quick backstory on it is... A long while ago, Festool came out with this one single cordless drill that had three little chucks on it. And um, they could go on. They do all sorts of really helpful things. Um, and then uh, I think for whatever reason, there was no competitors. I don't know the backstory, whether or not their patent ran out or whatever. But recently, Bosch came out with a sort of a small version of the same thing. It's like a 12-volt drill. And so it's not super expensive. And for what I need it for, I don't need big whopping horsepower on the thing. Um, but it has these chucks that are so invaluable. It's funny. I had, I, I had no idea how valuable they'd really be. Uh, they, there's a right angle chuck. So when you have a lack of headroom, like above where you're drilling or like straight above the head of the screw or whatever, you can fit it into tight spaces. And then it also has like an offset chuck, which puts the spindle really close to the top of the tool. So you can drill up against something that is really close by. And I don't know, a third of the time I use my drill, I end up pulling that thing out of its little case and like using it just because you're confined a lot more than you might think with a cordless drill, you know? Um, so yeah, I just think it's awesome. And the price is really affordable and you'll get a ton of use out of it all around your house. I mean, we all do things, we all do fine furniture stuff and it's great for that, but we also do things around our houses too. So. So do you ever reach for an 18-volt drill or anything these days? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I do. All my DeWalt drills are 18-volt, are, uh, and I like that um, at times. Yeah, I like to have it when I need it, yeah. And it doesn't hold me back. I have a 12-volt um, Milwaukee set, 
And maybe a year or two ago, I donated my old Porter Cable 18 volt set to Habitat. And I haven't looked back. And just yesterday, I brought my Milwaukee's down to my parents' house to work on some stuff on their house. And I remember all of a sudden I was like, I kind of wish I had 18 volt right now, but I was able to soldier through it. And it's, I don't feel like spend $200 to, to, you know, I've got somewhere better to spend the $200 right now. Right. So what about you, Mike? Are you, do you use 12 volt or 18 volt? Um, what do I have? 18 volt, I think. Okay. Yeah. I have a Milwaukee, Milwaukee, the drill driver combo. I'm pretty sure that's, I think that's, I'm sure that's 18 volt. You know, okay. they're kind of big and beefy, but yeah, um, they get the job done. I, I, I wouldn't say, I would say if I were getting another one, you know, 12 or 14 volt, I think that's fine for a shop situation. I think yeah. you get into more of the home building or, or, you know, uh, redecorating that kind of stuff. If you're in the house and you're using maybe bigger bill bit drill bits, driving through studs with those little, um, those spade bits and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Maybe the beefier guy could do it. But I think in a refined woodworking situation in a shop, I think 12 volt is fine. Um, I would still go 18. I say go 18. The little add on bit that I wish I, I did have is the offset bit. Um, I feel like I could use a dedicated drill with the offset bit um, sometimes. Yeah, I was just going to say that, as you guys probably know, I do a lot of uh, – I do some furniture making, but I also just like building everything. And so if you're more like me and you're like – you're constantly like working on your house and – it's kind of, for me, it's all kind of one thing, whether I'm doing built-in cabinets or I have a Murphy bed coming up or whatever it is. Um, so I end up just doing a lot of things with my drills. For strictly speaking, for making jigs and being in a fine woodworking shop, yeah, I think 12 is probably pretty solid or 14, like Mike said. What do you got, Ben? Um, my all-time favorite technique of all time for this week is I downgraded my bandsaw. I actually went and I took the ball bearing guides off of my bandsaw and I ordered old school guide block bearing fixture. Mm -hmm. And I took my bandsaw apart the other night and I downgraded it. I know that everybody, if you're buying a bandsaw, they want the ball bearing guides and blah, blah, blah. In my particular saw, it would, they were a pain in the butt to adjust. And I remember using that old Delta in the fine woodworking shop and how it was just always super, super simple. You just a couple of thumb screws, boom, guide, guide blocks are set. And so for about $40, I, uh, I have a Grizzly 055 LX and for about $40 in parts from Grizzly, I, uh, I downgraded and I am tickled pink over it. It's so much easier to operate. What kind of blocks are they? Ceramic or steel or that graphite impregnated? Uh, you know what? The, the blocks I got are whatever Grizzly had. They, they're plastic, as far as I can tell. I don't know if they last a long it time. It might be graph, the graphite stuff. Maybe. If, I don't know if they're going to last a long time. And maybe I get cool blocks or whatever after that. Um, and the other takeaway for me was my 
bottom bearings were seized up and I didn't even know it. Oh, yes. <laughs> <I've been there. laughs> Nobody was, ever goes down there. It's like the dark area of your shop. You're like, I hope everything's yeah. okay down there. I was taking them apart. I was like, wait a minute. These don't even move. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's the problem, yeah. but it just, I am a simpler is better. Well, no, I have a tendency of overcomplicating certain things. But when it comes to tools, I just want it to turn on and work and get out of my way. And I am really, really happy with this decision so far. Cool. Yeah, I I was going to say that. It's funny you say that because I'm getting frustrated with the bearing guides on my bandsaw. I don't know if this has happened to you, but if I get them close, and they can go closer than blocks because they roll, right? So they can go closer to the blade. But then if they touch the blade, they start to pinch it outward like it wants to pop out forward you know i don't know if that was happening to you but that's happening on my bandsaw and i think there's i don't know what it is and i just think blocks would be so much simpler (laughs) yeah mine the problem was that they're the bearings are actually on a cam so in order to move them you have to take an allen wrench which is a different size as the one to loosen up the, the housing to move them so you 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 do that and then you've got this cam and by the time you tighten it back down they always move a little bit right as you tighten it back down so you're trying to guess where you want the bearing in relation to the blade and then offset it a little bit then tighten it down it was just always kind of you just gave up at some point (laughs) and there are definitely saws out there with bearing guided uh with bearings that or ball bearings guides that are fantastic. This was not one of them. So I just thought it was easier to just downgrade it. Cool. Yeah. Mike. Um, as he looks around the room, wishing he was in his shop. No, I, I was going to say favorite new tool of all time, which is my brand new espresso machine. Oh, come on. (laughs) Holy moly. That looks awesome. The manual looked like it was, it was half the thickness of an Asa Christiana book. (laughs) By by the way, my my daughter, who's a senior in, in uh, high school, just informed me that one of the things on her college uh, to buy list is an espresso machine for her dorm room. (laughs) Awesome. Well, I, I think that's good, but it's like, that is a crazy world. If you start to dip your toe into, oh, I just want an espresso maker. No, that's like buying like a home stereo system. I mean, that is a deep, dark tunnel of more and more and more money. And then you have to like reel yourself back in. And it was crazy. So anyway, I, I'm, I'm happy, but that's not what I'm going with for this. Is, week. is it 220 volt? That's the question. It is not, unlike my first toaster. So, <laughs> is it three phase? <laughs> <laughs> so, favorite technique of all time. I guess it's a technique, and I'm not sure if it's my favorite. Um, but I'm at that point. I've I have a project which has been going on in the shop for a little while. And early on, like if you're milling, if you're cutting joinery, um, it's like it feels like you're taking big steps in moving forward. And then it's, you know, by the time you get toward the end, it's sort of like moving apartments where you got the couch and the bed and the refrigerator and all that stuff gone. And you think you're done and you turn around and there's still like three quarters of the stuff left to move. It was, it's kind of like that where you get to a certain point in making a big project where it feels like, 
ah, cool, I'm just about done. And then the problem is, is there's all these little tiny tasks to do, and none of them are dependent on the other chronologically. So there is no decision-making device for you anymore about what to do. And it seems like no matter what you do, it feels like the wrong thing because, oh, well, that's just a small thing and I have so many other things to do. And so favorite technique of all time, I guess, is just pick the one you want to do and do it. And don't worry that there's more stuff to do because if there's that many small things to do, you're not as close to being done as you thought you were to being done. So don't sweat it. Just do something. So which is why I spent the afternoon on Saturday doing uh, these Kumiko panels for a little uh, tea chest that I'm making. And it's like the Kumiko, oh, I can do that later. And it's like, nah, just sit down and do it. And it was nice. It was a nice afternoon. Now my Kumiko panels are done. So do you ever sit down with the, and like make up a checklist of what you need to do to get to the end on a product project? Um, the problem is when I teach like a week long furniture making class, I am so checklisted out. Like, I mean, cause you have to, those checklists are, are 10 times longer than any checklist you could conceive of in your own shop because you have to break down every single step of the process. It's like, it isn't just like install the shelf guides. It's like, you know, set up to drill the shelf hole, set up, you know, use the punch and the template to locate the shelf pin holes, go to the drill press. How many drill presses am I setting up for that? So basically mm-hmm. it's like, when I'm working on a piece for myself in the shop, it's just, it's private time. It's just like, no, I'm not doing any of that, but um, it's not a horrible idea. I think the main thing is to have a good game plan in the earlier stuff that is chronologically dependent, where if you just start going, you could work yourself into a corner without thinking about all the things. So um, that kind of stuff is super important. By the time you get to the end, you kind of know what needs to be done just by looking at something and saying, shoot, I haven't done that yet. I guess I have to do that. Yeah. yeah. I'm with Mike that when I'm working on a personal project, I kind of like to leave it a little more open, but not work myself into a corner. The one thing where I do use lists is if I'm going to have to leave a project for a week or so, I write uh-huh. myself little notes about like where I left it and what needs to be done next. Cause my 54 year old memory is failing quickly <laughs> as we speak. <laughs> In fact, I don't remember what Mike's whole point even was. No, I'm kidding. no, but, um, no, but, uh, but yeah, those little notes I write to myself, um, are really helpful. I have like a little whiteboard and I'll just write a couple notes about like, Hey dummy, remember to do X, Y, Z. Yeah, that's really good. That's, I don't do that, but that's super smart. I wish I did. Um, that is the worst thing is, is you're away from the shop for a week or a couple of weeks and you come back and you say, there is a reason I wasn't supposed to do that, but I don't think that Mike knew what he was doing and I'm just going to do it. And then it's just like, you're done and you say, oh yeah, okay, that's why I didn't want to do this. So Absolutely. It's like, don't funny. do this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I, I keep having the problem where, um, the finishing point of most of what I'm building these days, ukuleles is 
make it a playable instrument. And right. that's the part I'm really not good at yet. <laughs> you know, it's like that. I don't work at one of those magazines. <laughs> I, I, the other stuff is woodworking and yeah. that I can break down into steps and it, it, my brain functions well that way. The, the other stuff, I really have a hard time getting over that finish line, making the playable instrument. So I am big on at that last bit checklists. How am I going to get this done? That said, I always get it playable. And then in my head, go, all right, I'm going to come back and really tweak this out. And then it winds up in the house as an instrument that I play and it never comes back out into the shop and, Finished, finished. So, right. yeah. Actually, speaking of forgetting, I forgot that wasn't my thing of the week. My, f- <laughs> <laughs> my favorite uh, technique of all time for the week is um, not finishing something, as in putting a finish on something. The piece I'm making now, oh. I hand planed it and then I just burnished it and it just brought up this nice little hard shine and it opened up the grain a little bit. And I'm thinking, that's it. It's like, how do I make, how do I keep it looking like this after I put a finish on? The answer is, oh, don't put a finish on it. Isn't that in the Japanese tradition, Mike, to not finish um, some of woodwork, some woodwork? Yeah, I think so. I think, I think definitely. In fact, I have this, this little brush. It's this Japanese brush where it's a lot of fibers wrapped with cord. What's the, what's the, um, is a polisseur? Is that how you say that? Yeah. 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 So basically it's that same sort of thing. I think think what that is traditionally used for is like burnishing a waxed finish or something like that. But there's a a Japanese version and I'm not going to try to, you know, pronounce it because I don't know, but it's the same sort of thing. These things come in three different sort of coarsenesses, depending on the fibers that are wrapped up. And I have what I believe is like a medium thing. And I, I'm working in ash, so I hand plane the ash. And then I hit it with the grain with this burnisher. And it opens up the grain and leaves a super hard polish. And what I've been doing is just using a regular wire brush, which works really well. But it does make some of the softer wood a little fuzzy. And I have to go back over that with a, like this finer flapper wheel on my, on my, um, my handheld drill. But I find that this thing, it doesn't open up the grain as much, but it definitely does it. And it leaves like a polish. It's like, wow, I am done. So we'll see. This would be a really good article, I think, Mike, just my two cents. But I think that'd be an awesome article because it's not, it sounds like it's not as simple as just don't finish it. You're actually doing some stuff to it to burnish it and whatever else. So it's a different, it's finishing in a way, but without I can't finish. That's a really good point. It, it is very much a finishing process. You're right in terms of getting to that finished state. Yeah, maybe so. Do you consider the piece protected? Um, or is that, or is what, what follows just part of the history of the piece for you? Yeah. I think, you know, that the thing about protection is how much do certain surfaces need to be protected? So like, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, vertical surfaces, door panels, legs to a piece, you know, stretchers or rails for a base that aren't really going to get touched. I don't, you know, you're not 
spilling wine over everything. Um, don't bring it in my house. Yeah, I was going to say, Ben is looking at me like, <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, I actually don't try I don't know. So, you know, obviously the top of the case, I could see things being put on top of that, and we'll have to see how it goes. But the majority of finishes that you put on a piece of fine furniture, they're not doing a whole lot of protection anyway. Yeah, I mean, unless you get up to like the dining dining table finish of brushed on multiple coats of a varnish, you know, a regular shellac and wax finish, you put anything on top of that and you're going to get a stain or a ring or something like that. So my uh, right in front of me, I have my desktop is uh, well, it's a desktop that uh, I was surplus from the office and then a couple of really classy cinder blocks and then like a, a board above it that I just, I had some red Oak lying around that was from a beam at my parents' house. And I didn't apply finish because it was, I just needed to get my computer raised up just it's, and I'm in my shop, but honestly, I love the look of this red Oak without any finish on it. All of a sudden it was like, this is a beautiful wood that normally red Oak. I would, I would not like the look of once it's got that Amber added to it. My only problem is there was something I set down over there that, that wept something on it. And now it's like, man, do I have to plane that off or something? And yeah, that's tough. So Mike, so what you were saying about uh, finishing then is that, it can really just come down to an aesthetic choice. It's like, do you want to see that depth and like extra chatoyance? Are you okay with the wood just the way it is? If it's not so much for durability, it's just sort of, then it becomes like you could put a film finish or something that adds depth, but you don't necessarily have to do it for durability, I guess. Yeah, I think so. I think it depends on what's the use, what's the surface, how much wear is it going to get? What do you actually need to protect it from? And also I wouldn't, it's not a blanket statement to go with like no finishes because I think open grain woods like ash and white oak, I think I would do it with that, but something like cherry or walnut or maple, something with a nice depth of color or figure, I think absolutely you have to put finish on that. So I think it's, it's a definitely a situation specific thing. And just because I'm going to be living with this piece, I get to try out and experiment weird things that I wouldn't tell people to do in an article necessarily or ship off to a client and never stop worrying about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we have time for one more question and we're going to do a little bit of a two-parter just because part B I think is a quick answer. But uh, this question is from Pete. Um, My first question is about clamping mechanical joints, such as a mortise and tenon. Common practice is to use clamps to pull the joint together but this is not putting pressure on the face grain to face grain mating surfaces. We're instead just relying on the quality of the joint to get a strong bond. Once the joint is pulled together, why wouldn't you use another clamp to squeeze the faces together as if it were a bridal joint? I expect there's enough flex in most mortise sides for this to work. What what do you think, Asa? I think this is a really good question, actually, that doesn't get asked a lot. Um, and I think that it's, it's, a, it's situation dependent, like Mike was just saying on the last question. And there are times where you fit a pretty, the mortise walls get thin enough in a sort of a framing panel or something like that, 
where you are honestly going to probably have some outward flex. You're supposed to be engineering your mortise walls and your tenant thickness to try to not have that outward flex, but there probably is some. And across a joint like that, having a having a pinching that joint across the faces of the tenon would not be a bad thing. But I also agree with his first point that um, that his implication was like um, we're instead relying on the quality of the joint to get a strong bond. That I think is more is more the main point, which is you need to engineer your joints. So the mortise faces don't bow outward when you stick the tenon into the mortise and also really get that fit dialed in the way we've talked about in the magazine so many times to where the joint itself does apply all the pressure, glue pressure that you need. You know, the idea is to, to design the best possible joint you can so that all works properly. But all that being said, if you feel like you're in a situation where the mortise walls are a little thin and they may be bowing outward slightly or it might be helpful to pinch them uh, safely uh, for a better glue bond, I don't think that would be a bad idea. I don't know how uh, you guys feel, but. Um, yeah, I don't. I mean, you're exactly right. And this uh, questioner is exactly right in that some joints are dependent on, you know, clamping pressure affects the strength of the joint and other joints like a dovetail or mortise and tenon. Um, it's not that the clamps are just holding the parts in position as the glue dries. So um, you do want a pretty snug mortise and tenon joint. Um, the only problem I would have, I think, Ace, in your case, um, if the walls are actually flexing out and you want to put some light clamping pressure to kind of push them back in, that's fine. I think if there's a, if you're just have a gappy mortise and tenon and oh, you're yeah, clamping no. across, you're actually creating indents on that side. And then are you going to plane through it? And I think, yeah, you're, totally. Yeah. Um, you know, if you end up too skinny, you can, you know, shim it back out with veneer and try again. Um, just mix up some epoxy to throw in the joint. Cause that's a true gap filling joint. That's going to be plenty strong. Um, I do absolutely. If you're doing like a bridal joint, you know, basically sort of like an open mortise and tenon joint, absolutely throw a clamp on those guys because you can get some really good increased clamping pressure on that. Obviously, half lap joints, uh, miters, edge joining for panels, uh, clamping is going to have a a really big effect on the strength of the joint. If you're a little bit worried about a mortise and tenon joint, just pin it. You know, after the fact is fine. You're going to create some little mechanical strength there. Um, if you want to use a draw bore pin, which is, you know, you drive it in while the glue is wet and that pulls it super tight. You know, you're just getting your strength in a different mechanical way as well. So, um, and then just, you know, get into a routine to where your mortise and tenon joints are as snug as they should be. And then I don't think you necessarily need to be um, trying to add extra glue strength by trying to throw a clamp across that. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, that's why so much time and care is used in the fitting of most mortise and tenons. Right. Because that, that really is where the strength is coming from. Right. Yeah. Um, clamps are to seat the joint and let the glue dry. Um, but I wonder if either I, the, a thought that I just had, I'm remembering Asa, was it you or was it Tom who did a joint strength test article? And the Tom worked on that, maybe. I, am I wrong in thinking that the bridal joint wound up being the strongest joint? 
The bridle during the half lap joint were very strong because of being able to apply glue pressure across the joint. Yeah. Okay, oh, yeah. Really. Yeah. Interesting. So, so yeah. it is better. We did find that more pressure in our, in other glue tests too. We found that more pressure across the the a long grain to long grain joint like that was actually a good thing. Yeah. And the other thing about joinery is that, yeah, it's giving us, you know, mechanical strength where it's glued. The other job of a joint is to keep parts in alignment. And for instance, a mortise and tenon joint does a really good job of sort of holding those parts together in a lot of different axes, I guess, you know, maybe there might be a little bit up and down if your mortise is a little bit longer than the width of your tenon or however, like a half lap joint or bridle joint, you have to clamp that basically in three directions, like across one way, across the other way, and then across the face of the joint as well. And that is a nightmare. So I think that's another consideration. Um, Same thing with the dovetail joint is that a lot of that you have a lot of glue strength, but also it kind of aligns itself and holds itself together without really a lot of help. So yeah, absolutely, it's self-aligning. Yeah. the The older I get, my father becomes smarter and smarter. Um, he made a lot of the furniture in our house, and he's not trained at all. Never. It was just he'd look at something and just say, yeah, I, I can make that. And I remember looking at one of his pieces and it was a half lap joint that he pinned. And I was like, dad, why did you pin that? And he goes, because uh, the piece I was copying was pinned. And now that I think about it, well, at least that pin was holding things <laughs> in orientation while he was probably getting some clamps on the uh, side. Oh, maybe so. And maybe there was, I'm sorry, dad, I made fun of you that day. And um, we all know I shouldn't do that. So, <laughs> so that pin was, was probably helping. So good on you, dad. Couldn't hurt. All right. <laughs> uh, the last quick uh, quest part of this question is uh, from Pete is, why the disdain for pegboards to hold tools? I love a beautiful tool chest as much as the next person, but right now I'd rather be making things that actually make or that actually make it out of the shop. Pegboards are cheap, flexible, and provide easy access to all my tools. What am I missing? This is for you, Asa. I think you're an anti-pegboard guy. <laughs> I'll take up the pegboard, the anti-pegboard mantle. Um, I have a little pegboard in my shop that was just there. And, uh, and so, uh, someone else put it up. And so I use it to hang a few bandsaw blades and things on pegs. What I don't like about pegboards is I don't really love the holders that are available for it. Um, and so they don't hold the stuff securely or in a way that I really like. I would rather just put up tool panels on French cleats. That's kind of what I like to do for hanging tools. And, um, and then make custom holders. They're kind of fun to make and stuff doesn't fall off the wall. You know, my hand tools are really expensive and the things I want to have out, it all matters. And I don't want any of it falling off the wall. I just don't like metal things hanging on metal hooks. Um, it's more just the hangers that are available for pegboards. I guess you can get the little pegboard clips and attach those to custom holders as well. So that's fine. Uh, there's no huge problem with pegboards. I just haven't found them super useful. I like my system of tool panels hanging on French cleats. 
I spent too many years working in hardware stores to have pegboards in my shop because I think pegboard, I think retail and that's great, but that's just, this isn't the place for it for me. And another problem that I have is the pegboards that are in retail store or the pegs that are in retail stores are really, really expensive and they work really, really well. The ones that I can afford are not that they fall off anytime I take something off of it or anything like that. A screw into the wall stays there. No, no problem. That's my big thing. I think the most that can be said for having pegboard is you get to draw the outlines of all the tools. So it looks oh, so like a, cool. it's like a tool crime scene on your wall. And it's just, I, mm-hmm. I love That's anytime true. somebody <laughs> sends a picture of, of their grandfather's shop and it's yes. outlined. It's just like, Oh, I yeah. want to talk to that guy. So Asa, yeah. I like your question because you didn't go aesthetics at all. And I, and you really got to the point of just versatility and usability. And I think you're right. Yeah. Screw a piece of plywood to the wall and then put stuff where you want it. I want to hang yeah. this here. How am I going to hang it? And you're right. That's half the fun. Um, when I did my wall hanging tool cabinet, basically it was just a series of flat vertical panels and all the tool hanging, you know, customized for chisels or saws or spoke shaves or marking gauges. Um, yeah, you just make a little custom thing and super quick. It, it's not fancy. You just, you know, head to the bandsaw, draw a little outline, cut it. Does it hold it up? Yep. Where's it going to go? Screw it in place. That's a, that's a ton of fun. And then it looks super custom and it looks yes. like, you know, it looks like something you can be proud of. I think that's neat. Yeah, and my only twist on what Mike's doing is I like the panels that that I can move around the shop. So, like, if your shop layout changes, all your bandsaw accessories or your table saw accessories could be on a panel. And if you move that stuff, it's pretty easy to just relocate it. Or if you push your bench somewhere else, you just hang another French cleat and hang your panel. Your panel doesn't change. So it's another version of what Mike's doing in his tool chest, I think. Now, do you actually do that, Asa? I have moved my hand tools around, yes, but not my machine ones because they're kind of plunked where they're going to be. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't want to call you on it. <laughs> no, it's a fair question. There's a lot of theoretical yes, things that is. one's going to do in the future, like yes. using scraps, etc. <laughs> so uh, I want to add, because I'm with you, Asa, I don't like the metal on metal thing, um, but a lot of my tools are hanging on drywall screws. And what I do is I get... I bought a couple of years ago, maybe three or four feet of um, uh, vinyl gas line or something at the hardware store, a black hose, uh, three sixteenths inch ID, probably five sixteenths OD. And all of my screws go through that little hose and gives you a little cushion. It makes it look like it's not just a drywall screw screwed into the wall and classes the joint up. Right. So that's, it's a good okay. shop tip. Send send it into the workshop tip. I, yeah. You know what? I, I think I got that from like uh, Wood Magazine's Instagram, oh, okay. which I, I do <laughs> follow. So I, I can't I can't claim that one. <laughs> but um, all right. Well, I think that about does it for this episode of Shop Talk Live. Asa, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for contributing you to the guys. magazine and. It's always my pleasure, and it's so fun to hang out with you guys. Yeah, and if uh, if anyone wants to read more of Ace's work, uh, pick up the newest tools and shops. He's got a couple of articles. He's got the dust collector article, and then you have like a hand tool roundup of 
the best of the best throughout the years. Oh right? yeah, that is an awesome article. Uh, yeah, I think my I, I think Mike and I were both really happy with how that came out. We realized that we could take the um, we could take advantage of all these careful tool tests done by these amazing people like Chris Gochner and Garrett Hack and all these people and um, and uh, and and kind of take the best of the best, see what was still available on the market and uh, and and together it would sort of create a buyer's guide for hand tools um, a really reliable buyer's guide, there's just so much out there and it can be very overwhelming and I think this article really cuts to the chase on some very very reliable tools whether you're starting from the beginning of your hand tool journey or you're sort of like you're halfway there and you're looking to flesh things out with a better you know, fret saw or, you know, a coping saw or shoulder plane or whatever. I think all the answers are in that one small, tight little art. Yeah, very yeah. cool. Yeah, right on. Okay, so let's see. Yeah, back to the outro. That's all for this episode of Shop Talk Live. If you have questions you'd like us to answer on the show, send them to shoptalkatauntin.com. If you're watching on YouTube, click that thumbs up button. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Thank you for listening. If you've been waiting to become a subscriber to Fine Woodworking, now is the time. Follow us on social media and be sure to visit finewoodworking.com frequently as we will have some pretty incredible sales coming your way this holiday season.